God, aren't you glad you came to lift up the name of Jesus today? Lift up the name of Jesus today. Number one reason for being in church, what is it? To lift up the name of Jesus, to exalt Him, amen. If you leave today and you accomplish nothing else, if you don't grow in your call that does nothing, the most important thing is that you leave having fulfilled your number one purpose in church, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, amen, to exalt Him, to worship Him, to glorify Him, amen. That's why we're in church. One, two, three. First off, we are a sanctuary of praise and worship to glorify and exalt Jesus, to exalt the Father, to exalt the Holy Ghost, to exalt God. Amen. Secondly, we're a university where we come to learn and to grow and to and, and ask the Lord to help us to, 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 to grow deeper in love with Him, to honor Him more. And thirdly, a place where a hospital, where the broken can be healed and the dead raised to life. Amen. But the most important thing we do every week is we lift up the name of Jesus. We're just here to worship. We're here to say, Lord, I didn't come here to worship and. I'm not lifting you up so that. I'm just lifting you up. I'm just here to worship because I love you, Lord, because you deserve my praises. I'm not here if you protect me. I'm not here if you help me. I'm not here if you fix me. I'm just here to lift you up, Lord. And when we worship God like that, I, I just am so grateful that the rest of it starts getting taken care of, amen? God, I'm not lifting you up so that you can save my marriage. I'm not lifting you up so that you can bless my business. I'm not lifting you up so that you can heal my anxieties. Shouldn't say my anxieties, so I can heal the anxieties. But God, I, I'm, I'm just here to lift you up. Because above everything else, I want to, like Abraham, build altars everywhere I go and lift up the name of Yahweh. Amen. Amen. Can you just lift up some praise to God right now? Hallelujah. Just lift up some praise. Not because we want anything, but because you're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> there is one because because you're worthy, Lord. It's because you're worthy, because you deserve our praises. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So you've done that. It's a good excuse for a preacher too, isn't it? To say that if nothing else now, enough has happened. Takes all the pressure off the preacher. Doesn't matter how he preaches. Doesn't matter if you like it because we did the most important thing, right? <laughs> but no, uh, I have prepared a word that I am excited to preach for you this morning. Um, but I just firstly, though, want to say welcome to all of our new people today, if you're new. Um, I love that. I'm surprised that new people come to the 8.30 service. Um, I am. I'm like, man, I'm going to a new church. I'll go at 10.30, you know? Or I'll go at... 6 p.m. or but every service at eternity someone new is here yeah. we just want to say thanks for coming to church today and we just want to bless you and honor you and 
Um, we want to give you a gift after the service. So whether you're here in Des Moines or whether you're in Owine or Audubon, wherever you are, you can um, grab your free gift out in the lobby by our friends in the fluoro yellow shirts. They're going to hook you up. And so thanks for coming to church. We love you. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 24 today. Uh, we're in our sermon series, Walking Through Genesis. This will be my last sermon in this series for a few weeks. Um, because actually next week we start our sermon series, Heroes of the Faith. We can roll that up on the screen there. And um, so um, <clears throat> next week we're going to start our sermon series, Heroes of the Faith. And um, um, I'm going to be on stage a lot and off stage a lot during that month. And I know some of you are already wondering, why does this guy even get paid, you know? Um, <clears throat> he just took July off and... Now this, well, when I tell you who's speaking for us in October, you'll be like, Pastor Jesse, you don't have to come back. <laughs> you'll be like, you know, you can, you can just go home and just lead from home, you know. You can be a basement pastor if you want. It works for politics. Why can't it work for pastors, you know? And so, <laughs> oh, snap. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and so, but, um, so I'm preaching next weekend, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, starting off, kicking off our sermon series, Heroes, in the, Heroes of the Faith. And then we're bringing some modern heroes, um, some men of God. And, um, and uh, they're just men with an anointing and a gift and a humility to overcome trial and struggle and whatever else. And um, all of them have had ups and downs. And uh, we're just going to honor them and honor some heroes of the faith. So I'm preaching next week. Uh, the week after that, we have Brian Houston coming to preach at Eternity Church, and we're going to honor the man of God, and I'll talk more about that next week. Uh, the week after that, we have Tommy Barnett coming to preach, not Luke. Luke came the week before, but we're going to have Tommy Barnett come, and then the week after that, we have my childhood uh, lead pastor, Pastor Ron Mallon, uh, coming to preach the Word, and... Um, each one of those is honoring a hero of the faith in a different way. One honors uh, a hero who's been through the wars and been attacked and brutally, brutally attacked by different organizations around the world and uh, has come out the other side vindicated, praise God. Uh, another one of those honors a senior, a, a lead pastor of, I think it was America's first ever mega church actually, and it was in Davenport, Iowa. And um, it was Tommy Barnett, and then he moved to Phoenix and did it again. And um, so we're going to honor him for staying the course and the way they've been able to pivot uh, in this last few years, a season to realize we can't be a quiet church, but we need to be a bold church. And they have led the way before we ever did. Uh, really proud to know them. Uh, and then after that, we're just going to honor every small rural pastor that has just held the line in America by honoring my lead pastor from a town of a few thousand, a couple of thousand growing up. So, uh, so we're going to honor some heroes of the faith, okay? And I want to encourage you to, next week, it's important that before we have those three, that you come and hear the word next weekend, okay? It's really important that you hear next weekend's word to set up next three after that. So, so God bless you. Um, let's get into today's scripture, shall we? <clears throat> yep, so uh, Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. I love it when um, people call you old, but they're like, you know, I don't even know if you quite understand how old I said you were. You're not, you're old, but I want to make sure you get this. He's well advanced in years, you know. 
Moses is like bros old, um, but you need to know he's super old, you know, when he wrote this. And so I hope that's not how I'm described one day. He's an idiot, but just so you understand, he's an absolute moron. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, the repeat thing is just brutal, isn't it, you know? Um, I'm not talking about Abraham. I was talking about myself just then. Let's be clear. <coughs> um, now, Abraham was super-duper old, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who he had put in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now, this is a very, very... Um, uh, polished way to describe what happened here, just so you know. It was a lot more intimate and nuts crazy than what this says here, okay? And so uh, it was a different kind of experience, um, but we got to make sure we see these things through a 4,000-year-ago culture, not a 2024-23 culture, sorry, yeah? Um, and so it was a very intimate kind of oath that they're making here, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, uh, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, among whom I'm surrounded by right now. Um, but you will go to my country and my kindred and you'll take a wife for my son from there. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land, but uh, must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. And then he goes on and re-explains some things. He says, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and uh, he spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I'll give this land. Um, he, uh, he will send an angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. <coughs> let's, um, let's, um, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the privilege it is 4,000 years later to read about this. That we could learn from it. Um, we can learn from Abraham, we can learn from Isaac, and we can learn more of your heart for us in this process. So God, I pray today that you'd help us to be inspired by some of the excellent parenting that Abraham does in this chapter. I pray that you'll also help us to be inspired by Isaac's uh, submission to his parents, that you would help us to uh, grow closer to you and appreciate you even more as we learn more about your heart. Uh, for Abraham, for the Abrahamic covenant, and for how that applies to our life today as well. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Someone say amen. 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 Awesome. Come on, you may say hello to your neighbor and take your seat. <clears throat> hello, 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 hello. All right. So before we move on, I want to close the loop on that story and just let you know how that uh, panned out there. Excuse me. <coughs> um, uh, the servant basically just gets up in chapter, in verse, uh, verse 11, uh, the verse 10, sorry. The servant just gets up and he heads off to Mesopotamia. Um, and the reason for this is that it's really important to Abraham, it's really important to the call of God on their lives, uh, that, um, that, um, that, that Isaac marries a woman who, like them, is called out 
rather than them marrying in. Does that make sense? So Abraham, uh, looking at his son, he's like, we, we need to find a wife for Isaac. It's important that she is a woman who's called out of a place and called out and to be different, to be holy and set apart rather than a woman who is, uh, rather than, a, than us marrying into uh, a family of the Canaanites who surround us right now, right? Pretty, there's some pretty basic reasons for that. Uh, number one, uh, we want someone called out and then they come into our family uh, and, and being surrounded by quote unquote uh, sort of enemies. Um, there's going to be a social pressure to conform to our beliefs, our systems, our ways, our cultures. If I was to marry into the Canaanites, then I'm going to have pressure to adapt their cultures, their beliefs, their, 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 their systems and customs, right? And so it was important that Isaac's wife was someone who's called out just like Isaac's family was called out. So the servant goes <coughs> um, and he finds Rebecca. And Rebecca uh, comes willingly. Uh, her brother is Laban. We'll talk about him um, in a few weeks. Um, uh, she willingly comes. Isaac and Sarah gaze upon each other's eyes, uh, fall desperately in love. They make sweet love in a tent. I don't know how your honeymoon went, but theirs was in a tent in the wilderness. Um, and then they're married. That, that, in old covenant um, wedding ceremonies, that basically is. The consummation is the marriage. Um, we see that Isaac really loves her, and the chapter actually ends with this beautiful sentence that, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, and this, that, that sentence at the end is a really important little bow tie on the end of that chapter. It's not just he was sad and that gave him comfort, it's <clears throat> the things happening in this chapter relate to making sure that that's how the chapter ends. Do you understand? And so keep that in mind. So again, the chapter basically starts with Abraham is a super old dude, um, and then there are some things that he needs to take care of before he dies, because his death is coming up really, really fast. So the first um, 11 or so chapters of uh, Genesis, we're dealing with uh, creation, design, purpose, uh, and people's propensity to chase after evil and the flood. Then it transitions into a story about Abraham for basically the last 12 chapters that we've been, uh, that we've been dealing with. Uh, and then um, after this next couple of weeks that we will spend in it, uh, or the next couple of sermons, I should say, in Walking in Genesis, it then just deals with Isaac and Jacob and their stories. So it was all pre-Abraham, and then it was Abraham and his descendants from then on. <clears throat> and we're really fast approaching Abraham's death, and for the story to continue going the direction that God's called Abraham and his family, Abraham needs to deal with a couple of things, okay? The first thing is, where will he be buried? Um, and he took care of that with Sarah's death last week. If you were in church, you would have heard either Pastor Sean or Pastor Rob preach a sermon on Genesis chapter 23, dealing with Sarah's death. And the second thing that he needs to deal with is who will my son Isaac marry? And um, y'all need to know, uh, kids or, or single people, that um, after will I follow Jesus, the next most important thing you need to ask yourself is, if I'm going to get married, who will that person be? And Abraham needs to take care of these two things um, uh, to make sure that Isaac would not go back to that which Abraham was brought out of, okay? 
So I want to spend a moment uh, just rewinding to 23 for a moment and unpack the significance of the burial site and what happened there. So if ever there was a reason to go home, it's when a loved one dies, right? Like if ever there's a reason to go back where you came from, it's because somebody passed away. Um, the last week, the week before, um, my cousin Emily was visiting from Australia and she was asking me uh, when I planned to go back to Australia. And I said, um, no plans, I'm not sure if I ever will, I don't really have a plan. And she said, uh, you know, sensing that I have some ambivalence towards my homeland, <clears throat> um, she said, well, what if I died, speaking of herself? And I said, well, you'd already be gone, and there's not much I could do to help you then, is there? <laughs> and um, she then asked me, you know, just uh, ever being a cheeky, much younger cousin, um, asked me, well, what if... Um, Uncle Neville and Auntie Kathy and Tom and Mary Ann and Katie and Sarah and all my family died and I was the only one left. And I said, well, at that point, I'd probably think about contemplating the opportunity to come and comfort you and be kind and to love you, but I would probably buy a ticket for you to come here. And... Um, <clears throat> But I'd at least think about coming to give you some comfort because we do love you, you're a sweetheart, yada, yada, yada. Um, but there is something about death, though, isn't there, that takes people back, right? That takes you back to the people that you came from, to the customs and to the places of your past. There's something about death that does that in your life. And uh, many times people will revert to bad habits or even good habits when someone in their family, a loved one, a spouse, a family member, a son, anyone would pass away. And in ancient times, specifically in Abraham's time, uh, it was the same, but with one extra custom. See, right now, if, um, you know, if we if, if, if you were to pass, if, if my dad was to pass away, he'd probably be buried around about where he lives. Um, but in Abraham's time, if someone was to pass away, they would be carried back to where their family is and buried there, right? And so if we were in Abraham's time, the idea would be that I, if I was to pass away now, that Lauren and the kids would make a journey and bury me uh, in Ipswich in Queensland, uh, where I was born where my people hail from, right? Um, which, please, just let it be known, don't let her do that, all right? Um, if, if I should get hit by a bus after church today, um, I want to be buried in the promised land that is right here in Iowa, right? The promised land right in the middle of the United States. Don't let her take me back to that commie place, okay? Um, <clears throat> but the person who passed away... But the person would often be taken back to their homeland, to their family. Now, Abraham, in Abraham and Isaac's grief, they were expected to go back, right? This is what you do. Their servants, no doubt, expected a journey back to Mesopotamia. Their, their servants were probably preparing, expecting at any point now, Abraham's going to call us in and tell us we need to prepare the camels and the food uh, and the gasoline for the camels to get ourselves all the way back to Mesopotamia. That's probably what he thought the meeting was about when Abraham called the senior servant into the tent. Uh, all the Canaanites around them, no doubt, expected that Abraham and his clan uh, were leaving soon to go back and bury Sarah. Uh, perhaps Isaac himself 
uh, expected that he might find some comfort soon in the arms of long-lost family and relatives and customs that he had not met or experienced yet. And so with that kind of expectation going on around Abraham, when he bought the field and buried Sarah there, it's a much bigger deal than just, I want to be buried here. Okay, it's a much bigger deal than even Jesse Newman saying, I want to be buried in Iowa as a No, no, it was a statement that that's not my home. And that's not where our family will be, okay? Uh, sure, everyone expects you to go back. Everyone expects that at some point you're going to give up. <clears throat> at some point, this, this ludicrous journey that you've taken yourself on is going to end and you will return to the place which you come. Have you ever dealt with that, right? Where people expect that at some point, this thing that you're doing is going to end. At some point, this thing that you're committed to is going to fail, and you're going to have to go back to the place and back to the people and back to the job and back to the customs that you came from, right? And so what you need to do is buy a field and tell everybody that I'm staying right here in the will of God for my life, in that which God has called me to, amen? Maybe you felt the Lord call you to start a business and you tell your boss and your boss says, okay, but in his heart, you know he thinks that you're coming back, right? That at some point, you're going to fail, you're going to give up, this isn't going to work, and you're going to go back to the place that you came from, to the place that you had security. Uh, that was like that for Lauren and I. When we moved over here, there were people who were like, you'll be back, you know. Uh, there was one guy, a fairly successful guy, who even pulled me aside and said, Jesse, and I want you to know something. And it sounds like he's about to share this great faith statement with me. And no doubt in his heart, he thought it was a great faith statement. He says, hey, um, after a while over there, um, if it doesn't work out, and I'm like, it's going to work out. How do I know? Because I got a word in my heart that no man's lack of faith could ever deny. I got, I got a word in my heart that I know came out of the mouth of God in heaven and pierced my eye. It's going to work out. <clears throat> but he proceeded to let me know that, hey, if it doesn't work out, worst case scenario. I love it when people package their lack of faith as a uh, sort of positive statement, right? You know, worst case scenario, Jesse, if it doesn't work out, you'll come back having learned a lot and matured some. And I'm like, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, like this is going to work and, and, I, and I'm going to buy a field. You know, a part of us uh, buying the field over here, some of it was literally buying our first home in the United States and we believe that told the people here that we're going to stay here, okay? That some people were like, ah, they're probably here, like pastors tend to sort of come for a good time and we're like, we're not here for a good time, we're here for a long time and praise God, it'll be a good time, right? But I tell you what, another thing was we told everybody and every chance I got, I said, we're not going back. We're not going back. I, may, I remember making statements in the microphone. If I go back, if we go back, it's because A, we lied to you about hearing from God or B, we quit because it got a little hard. We bought the field. We couldn't, you can't go back after you say that. You got to stay. We bought the field, Okay. When Abraham bought the field, that was the moment everybody else knew he, he, he was never going to change his mind. Sometimes there's something about putting a bit of finance in your vision too, isn't there? 
I think that for some of you, you need to buy the field by starting to tithe. Isn't it amazing? Because, you know, when, when I used to own some Amazon stock, I cared a lot about Amazon stock. I did. I really did. When I own Apple stock here and there, I care a lot about the price of Apple stock. Right now, I've got some Airbnb and Shopify. They're the main ones I've got. This is not investing advice. Don't think, well, I'm going to be like the man of God. I did not get a word from God, okay? I just bought it, all right? <clears throat> but when you put your finance in something, you t- your heart tends to follow it into that something, right? See, Scripture doesn't say where your heart, sorry, where your, where your, um, where your finance is, there your heart is. It actually says where your finances are, your heart will be also. In other words, you can direct your heart a little bit with your finances. And so as you start to buy the field and help us win the lost and help us hire staff and help us make disciples and help us bless uh, our community and help us build a building as you, as you buy the field, come on, your heart starts to follow it too. And it says, I ain't going back. Amen. Little tithing plug there in the middle of a sermon. <clears throat> when Abraham bought the field, that was the moment everybody else knew he was never going to change his mind. Oh, he'd already proven himself to God, hadn't he, right? That was the whole uh, Abraham and Isaac up on the mountain with the knife kind of experience. Uh, that was the, the faith test there. God knew his heart, but no doubt the world still had their doubts. The people back home who they'd recently come back into contact with two chapters ago have no doubt thought he's coming back at some point. Um, uh, the people around them, the Canaanites, no doubt thought they'll go at some point. Uh, but isn't it funny? See, God often has more faith in us, often. God always has more faith in us than the people around us will. God knows the resolve of our hearts. Can I get an Amen. So though God knew that Abraham, he's committed to this, the resolve is in his heart, he will not go back, this is the moment that the world found out when he bought the field. He's never going back. He has decided that this place of death is where their life will be. He said that I'm going to bury my dead here as a, as a prophetic moment that, that, that life is going to come from this place. That, 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 though we, that because we're burying our dead here and our past here and, and our old customs here, that we are going to live a new life, a life to the full right here. Amen. And he bought an expensive field. He paid six to seven times what that field was worth. Six to seven times what that field was worth. This was a permanent and faith-filled act. It was an expensive act of commitment to the Word of God. Everyone thought he's going back. He had every excuse to go back. It was cheaper to go back. I'm telling you, the gasoline for those camels was a lot cheaper than paying seven times the price of a field and a cave. Amen. But he was not going back. He says, I'm not going back. He settled it. At that point, nobody thought Abraham would go back. But there was one more thing he needed to settle. I'm not going back, but I need to make sure that my son doesn't go back either. I got to make sure that he stays here too, right where God has called us. So in Isaac's grief, Abraham realizes that if ever there was a chance that that Isaac might undo that what God has done in his father, it's now. It's in this season of death. Because not only has Sarah passed, but he's fully aware 
that he also is on his way out and that at some point very soon he's going to leave the story. And uh, Isaac will have at that point then lost both his mother and his father. And it's still true today that in seasons of death, we can allow ourselves to slide back into the things that we used to be. It can happen a lot. Issues that we used to have. Stresses that used to hang on us. Hanging around people that we used to know. Reliving feelings that we used to have. Maybe even falling into family curses and family drama that we used to live in. And so Abraham... He calls his head servant into the tent and he makes him swear a very intimate oath that he will not let Isaac take a wife from among the Canaanites, but that he would call out a wife rather than letting his son marry into the Canaanites. And so the servant asks, <coughs> excuse me, what if she won't come? Shall I then take Isaac there to find a wife? And Abraham adamantly says, you must not take my son back there. You must not take my son back there. Because in seasons of grief, in seasons of trial, in seasons of heartache, people get attached to these old customs, these old people, these old ways, these old beliefs, these old habits. You must not take my son back there. And then he begins reminding the servant of the promises of God to Abraham and his descendants. He then begins to remind the servant that in this place, we're going to experience the Abrahamic covenant. He says, we were called out of Mesopotamia, that God, our provider, called us to be his people, forever living in this place for a purpose that has eternal consequences. A provider, a people, a place, and a purpose. Abraham is reminding the servant that God is our provider, that we are his people, that this is the place and that God has given us purpose, amen? That's the Abrahamic covenant right there, that, that we're his people. He called us right here and he's assigned a great purpose to our lives and we're never going back. We're never going back. We're never going to step out of this. We're never going to step out of his provision. We don't want to stop being his people. We're never going to leave the place he called us to. And we don't want to stop living in purpose. The world may think that we'll abandon the call of God because it got a little bit hard, but we ain't going back. The world may think that we're going to walk away from this place because there's a little bit of opposition, but we ain't going back. The world may think we'll abandon the purposes of God, but we ain't going back. They think that we're not the right people, but we're never going to be the people of Mesopotamia ever again. Can someone say amen? <clears throat> but here's the thing. Did you say amen? amen? Listen, if you amen that, you're amening the truth in your own life as well. We too, church, are heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. We too are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, the theological term for it, the Abrahamic covenant. We are heirs of those promises. Galatians 3.29 is not the only place, but it's one of many places we see in Scripture that we are reminded that we are heirs of the promise. It says, and if you are Christ, stand up if you're Christ's. Come on, people who are nervous to move their hands in church. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can't move it in church. <laughs> you know, like, come on. You, if, if It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Yeah. Heirs according to the promise. 
Come on, heirs according to the promise. And in, we see in Romans that, that, that by faith we have become Abraham's heirs. Amen. And guess what? We're not going back. Because this life is better than the life that we had before. Anyone agree? Give me a wave if that's true for you. That this life, that, this, that living God's way has been better than the life that you lived before. Amen. So we're not going back. It might be harder. It might get desperate. It might be harder at times, I should say. It may even put a big target, a big fluorescent target, sorry, America, a big neon target on your back, but we ain't going back, amen? Because in spite of everything the devil throws at us, we know that in all things and in all ways and in all places, God's way is better. That God the provider has called us to be his people, and he put us in this place and he great, gave us great purpose. Eternity Church, God is our provider. God is our provider. And he will provide, he will richly provide all of our needs. And he's called us to be his people right here in Iowa. And he gave us purpose. How cool is that? You are God's chosen people. <clears throat> Come in, you are one of God's people. This is really good news. Like you are one of God's people. And that he... He loved you enough to find the right place for you to serve him. And he's given great purpose to your life. And he's put some of us in Owine and some of us in Audubon and some of us in Des Moines and some of us in Norwalk, Johnston, Abundalay, West Des Moines, even downtown Des Moines. He spread us out everywhere. But he's called us to be his people here. God's called us to be his people in Iowa who lift up the name of Jesus, who boldly declare the truth of God's word, who courageously offer grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to people that the world don't deserve to touch, smell, or even see the grace of God, and yet he's called us to be the ones that give it to them. While saying, for yesterday, my friend, there's mercy. Today, let's tell you the truth and pray that God will give you the grace to live in that tomorrow. Can I get an Amen. Showing people that everyone who sees us, they'll see that God's way is better. That everyone who drives past us, that everyone who hears about us, they will see that the children and the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant are living a better life, are living with all that they need and have every relationship they need, that there is strength, there is healing, there is joy, there is peace. God is our provider, amen. I hope they look at us and go, they're a different bunch. But I cannot deny that it would look like God's way is working out better for them. <clears throat> Amen. And because he's our provider, he'll give us everything that we need to fulfill his great purposes in our lives and in the places he's called us. See, Jehovah Jireh, <clears throat> God our provider, Jehovah Jireh, God our, he, he, I am Jehovah Jireh. That's, I am God your provider. Okay. So Jehovah Jireh never provides a vision without provision. God will never provide a vision without provision. Can I get an amen? Never provide it. Yeah, it's misspelled on there like it is in my notes. God will never provide a vice on without a pro-vice on. <clears throat> Let's fix that for the next service. Just noticed it in my notes. I, by the way, there's a lot of squirrels in today's sermon coming up soon, and I chased down most of them. I learned that yesterday, okay? So um, make peace with going home 
in quite a while. <clears throat> God, the provider, never provides a vision without provision. That's true, not just for our church, but for our families. Amen. It's true for my family, for your family. It is true for our church. It's true for our friends at New Hope Assemblies of God in Urbandale. It's true for our friends at Hilltop in Waukee. It's true for our friends at Walnut Creek on the interstate. It's true for our friends at Fort Des Moines on the south side or near there. It's true for our friends at River Church in Clinton and Life Point in Waverly. And it's true for every other Bible-anchored, 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 Jesus-loving church in our state. Amen. His will will be done, amen? And he will provide the provision for every vision and every purpose that he promises. We by faith are heirs of Abraham. And by faith, we are Abraham's descendants and receivers of his promise, and that's true for you, okay? He will richly provide for your every need. So let me sum that part of the message up. God's will is that you would be a people in a place living for a purpose, trusting him to provide. And he will provide. He put you, the person, in that workplace for a purpose, and he will provide for you through it as you fulfill his purpose in it. Let me say it again. He put you, the person, in that apartment building for a purpose, and he will provide for you through it as you fulfill his purpose in it. <clears throat> and again, he put you, the person, in that school place, come on now, and he will provide for you, sorry, for a purpose, and he will provide for you as you fulfill his purpose in it. The question is, will you trust him in it? Will you remain committed to him even when it gets hard, even when you get ridiculed, even when they mock you? Will you do his will there even when they come against you? Will you lift up his name in your school even if it costs you? Will you chase after him in your workplace even if it puts a lid on your upward mobility? Come on now, because you all know that God can't provide for you if you, if you, if you dare to share the name of Jesus at Wells Fargo. The amount of times I hear people say, well, that's easy for you. You're a pastor. You, you, you don't know what it's like. You, you, can't, you can't just preach the gospel. You can't talk about Jesus at my workplace. It's not allowed, okay? And then it's like, no, 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 then I'll get fired. And oh, you're right, you're right. God could not provide for you if you talked about Jesus at your workplace. You're right, you're right. That's the only way he could possibly provide for you if you became a covert Christian. <clears throat> Yep, that's the only way God can provide for you. No, 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 no. I'm going, number one, the Constitution of the United States gives me the right to exercise my religion. You want to you fire me? Let's go to court, whatever else. But number two, even without that, God is my provider, not Wells Fargo. He's just using you to give me what God wants me to have. Oh, no, I can't lift up the name of Jesus at principle. No, no, listen to me. You are principal. You are being used by God to bless me. And if you don't want to fall in line, he'll pour it out some other way. But you'll miss out on the favor that comes to you because I'm here. You'll miss out. Can someone say amen? amen? Come on, listen to me. You need to know right now that God did not call any of us to be his silent person in the quiet place for a secret purpose begging God to provide. 
Just in case you didn't hear me, let me say it again. God did not call any of you or any of us to be his silent person in the quiet place for a secret purpose, begging for his provision. It's the parable of the talents, isn't it? Right? He called you, trust him, steward what he gave you, and trust him for more. God, I want more authority in my workplace. I'm going to have to stop talking about you to get there. It's not going to fly. All right? It's not going to work. All right? If you want God to bless you, you got to honor God in what he's given you. Will we live in the promises of God? Will we be his people? Oh, can I go back? I'm, I'm, I've got a squirrel. Now, listen. You know what I think this is? If we're going to say, I can't talk about my faith, I can't preach the truth, I can't speak. There's a hair floating in front of me, sorry. <laughs> Told you it's not a good day for getting out of church early. Um, if, if, if we're like, I can't preach on that because I'll lose my job and I need the finances, I actually think that what we did at that moment is elevate money above the Lord. The scripture says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And the evil that happens in a place when people value the paycheck over the word of God is that faith goes silent and ungodliness and corruption grows. Love of money. Love of money. Love of money. Will we live in the promises of God? Will we be his people? Be faithful in the place that he puts you. Steward it well, living for his purpose above the ours or the world's agenda. Then we can trust him to pour out his favor and his provision on our lives. Can I get an amen? amen. After the service, I want to pray. I want to spend some time praying for those who in the hard times have felt a bit of a pull back to the things of yesterday. Back to the places of yesterday, the people of yesterday, the old rotten provisions of yesterday, the old dead purposes that we lived our lives for yesterday. I want to pray that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen you and help you stay the course to stay in His will, amen, in the place that He called you, living the life that He called you to, doing the things that He's called you to do, amen. Perhaps you come to church today and you're on the edge of giving up, tempted to give some ground back to the devil. And everyone would understand. They'd see what you're going through. They'd see how difficult it is. And they would all understand. And a lot of them didn't expect that you would last this long anyway. They didn't think you'd stay sober this long anyway. They're expecting you to give it all back to the devil. They're expecting you to take another sip. They're expecting you to roll up your sleeve. They're expecting you to run back to the addictions of yesterday. Perhaps time has proven it's too hard and people will be okay with it, but I'm here to tell you, stay the course. Stay the course. Be who God designed you to be. Stay where God sent you. Live for the purpose God gave you. Trust that God will do what God promised he would do. Amen. Don't go back. See to it that you don't go back. Amen. We have been called out of terrible places. Lives controlled by addiction. Lives controlled by worldly pursuits. Empty pursuits. Living for ourselves and discovered that as we live for ourselves, we don't even like ourselves. 
Lives dead in sin, families destroyed, brokenness, hurt, lies, pain, poverty, death, depression, anxiety, disease. We've been called out of that. We're not going back. Can I get an amen? Come on, we're not going back. Abraham was called out of pagan worship. Yeah, it's all right. You were messed up. It's all good. Me too. I kept going back to some mess even after I got saved, but I finally gave it up. I finally gave it up. Abraham was a pagan worshiper, idolatry, all kinds of evil, a life that was an offense to God, yet God called him, loved him, and forgave him. I don't know what kind of pagan you think you are right now, yet God has called you, loved you, and he stands ready to forgive you. And through many trials and struggles, faith moments and victories, Abraham discovered that God is good, that God does what he says, that our God is faithful to the end, amen, that our God is a good father. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He is our provider. We are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Can I get an amen? He will pour out his favor and blessing in us and we just stay the people in the place living for the purpose that God has promised us. But here's what the question is, though. I can do this. Here's what the question is. All of that's great. And it is great. I'm not mocking it at all. All of that's great, right? What a great thing God's done for us. But the, 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 the question that matters after dealing with Abraham saying, I'm not going back, I'm getting buried here, my wife's getting buried here, we ain't going back. The next most important question he asks is, will this change live on or die with me? Will the promise last a lifetime or for generations? Will the kids go back or will they build upon that which God has done in me? Will the kids continue to be the people in the right place, trusting the provider as they live for his purpose? Because it took a very specific and intentional leading and parenting for Abraham to ensure that the promise lived on beyond his and Sarah's death, that it lived on in Isaac. First, he planned his death well and his wife's death well. Second, he planned marriage as well. Did you hear me? Second, he planned his kids' marriages well. Well, I am planning my kids' marriages. Uh, they are so silly enough to think that they're planning it. <laughs> I and my wife are planning their marriages. They can plan their weddings, <clears throat> but we are planning their marriages. Here's why. And when I say that, I'm talking about the long runway before it that we're planning and we're working and we're intentional. Because today's culture of dating is disgusting. It's ungodly and it is not conducive to healthy marriages. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't let our kids date, but I wonder what is the purpose of them dating? Is it for pleasure, for notoriety, notability? Is it for bragging rights? I have a girlfriend. 
I have a boyfriend. <laughs> oh, really? Well done. That's it? Congrats. Like, why are you dating? Why? I'm not saying it's not all right. I'm not saying that none of you met your, girl, met your wife or your husband in eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, or 11th grade. That's fine. I'm just saying, but why are you doing it? The why matters more than if you're doing that. Doing it being dating, okay? The Western version of dating is a failed experiment. It's only the last hundred years or so that dating has even become a thing. And actually, the word dating first came into existence in the late 1890s as a word for sexual immorality. (laughs) Hands up if you're dating. No. (laughs) Right? Uh, I, I I prefer the word friends or courting. Or at least when we use the word dating, like I know lots of words have changed. Gay used to mean happy, right? Like, like I know language shifts over time. By the way, it doesn't shift overnight and suddenly pronouns are a thing, all right? It, it happens over time, okay? Language shifts over time. So I hope that now when we use the word dating, we understand it's more like courting, okay? But understanding how it went from meaning sexual immorality to what it is today is an important process. So that we can make sure that when we date today, that we don't involve the drama that created it. So let me walk through a history of dating and women's rights and roles. Uh, Yes, I said that. It's important we have to talk about women's rights today in the last 11 minutes. Um, Let me walk through a history of dating and women's rights and roles in the West and uh, A pastor friend compiled this list, and I want to share it with you. Um, I want to show you how a change in the views of dating and a change in the views of God's ordained roles for men and women have uh, destroyed marriages and faith in America. Okay, So in the early 1900s, women were discouraged from going out alone with males, um, and if they did, it would lead to a bad reputation. and even was considered it might be dangerous because the sort of young man that wants to be alone with you anyway is probably not a good young man. Now, sadly, young men were not frowned upon as much as the young women were when found alone with the opposite sex. Um, I think that uh, it should be equally uh, frowned upon uh, for either of them, but I digress. Um, In the early 1900s, women's magazines were all about the home, and they were all about cooking, and they were all about decor, and they were all about family, and they had millions and millions of subscribers in the USA and all over the Western cultures, okay? And so that's what a woman's magazine was about then, okay? It wasn't about, you know, 10 secret sex tips. It wasn't about how to know if she really loves you, if he really loves you, or she these days. Um, If you want to know, if he loves you so, it's in his kiss, you know. It wasn't wasn't about that back then, okay? It was about family. It was about the home and cooking and whatever else. In the 1920s, urbanization um, uh, started to, to sort of really take over and that, that sort, of, um, sort of urban life started to take off where instead of finding our fun and pleasure in the home, we, all of us, not just women, not just men, but started to find our fun and pleasure in restaurants or movies or dance halls or bars or parties or whatever else. And so the focus started to shift from let's be at home for the best parts of our life to let's have our best experiences somewhere else, okay? 
Um, and so that's one thing you can do to help strengthen your family. Make sure your best experiences are at home as a family. Or if you are somewhere else, that's as a family. Amen. Uh, the 1930s, dating began, um, dating pressure, I should say, became a stronger uh, force than, um, than cooling. And so the pressure to date was more important than the calling um, to, to start to recognize, well, what is my calling? You know, what am I supposed to be? What is my role as a man? What is my role as a woman? It was more about, well, you've got to be dating someone and go on a few dates. Uh, in the 1950s, dating started to become a bit of an economic matter. It makes economic sense for us to be together um, at work. Uh, male and female relationships started to uh, become a normal thing. We started drifting away from the idea that my wife's closest male friend would be her husband or the man she's courting to be her husband, or, and, my, and a man's closest female friend would be his wife or a woman that he's courting to be his wife, but it could be multiple different people of the opposite sex. And um, I'm not saying you can't be friends with the opposite sex. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's a shift, okay? In the 1960s, the feminist movement pushes men to treat women like men, okay? That, that women are just better looking versions of us. That's it. There's no difference, you know? Um, we're just a little bit stronger, okay? But other than that, men and women are effectively the same, have effectively the same desires, effectively the same outcomes. We're the same. You just look better than we do, okay? And, and I want to stop for a second and talk about that because I think that the feminist movement was the greatest lie ever given to women in America. And this is the greatest lie ever given to women in America, okay? Um, now, I'm not saying that women uh, don't deserve to vote, okay? I'm not talking about that. You do deserve to vote, and uh, my opinion wouldn't matter anyway, all right? Um, but you do deserve to vote. Um, that's all great. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that in you versus in me, God put different desires, different uh, general kind of passions in each of our lives, okay? And I believe, not I believe, but you can see for yourself looking at women now versus then. Did you know that women in the early 1900s who read magazines about cooking, decor, and family were about two times happier than women now? Double as happy on all measurable, um, on all measurable indexes as they are now. So it would seem that the feminist movement was a lie, wouldn't it? Right now, I know some people in here are ready to get up and punch me in my throat. Well, I am stronger than the ones who want to do that. And so it's just biological differences. So good luck. But because we're different, right? The cultural pressure that women have to be like men or that they have to work and find success in their income levels or whatever has not led to happier women in the Western world. This pressure has decreased the joy in women's lives and decreased the satisfaction and fulfillment they get in their lives. And it's not that women should not work. The Proverbs 31 woman earned income for her family. She ran a business. I'm not saying that. The problem is the pressure that a woman has to work outside the family has not led to more joy in the women in our country, <clears throat> okay? The pressure that that's where your success comes from has not led to more joy in our women or in our families. It's a lie that working is the only way a woman 
can find success. It's an absolute lie. And the feminist movement is basically this. Pay women the same. And I'm like, cool. Firstly, they say that men have, uh, that men have better lives than women. I'm like, that's probably true now-ish because you guys all got pushed into something that a lot of you didn't want to do. And so that may cause some truth there. But also, is this whole equality thing only about money? Because that's all I ever hear about. We're not equal because. We're not equal because. So let me flip it around. We're not equal because men die earlier than women. We're not equal because men have to breathe in more toxic gases in coal mines than women. We're not equal because men are more often estranged from their family. We're not equal because men often find themselves in prison at significantly higher rates than women do. So you're right, we're not equal. But if you're only measuring money, number one, your love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and that is not the ultimate success in life. You just want the money, but you don't want to die like we have to. I think that the feminist movement timed the fight for equality perfectly well. We'll wait until there's not as many people having to work in the coal mines and we've got a few air conditioners in the office and then we're going to really push for it. Is it all right to say this? Hands up if you're uncomfortable. I am and I'm up here and I'm saying it, right? <clears throat> like, I'm scared. On our staff at church, we have lots of working mums. We are not against working mums. Not against it at all. Not against it. Many are part-time. Many are full-time. But we're extremely flexible in making sure that being a working mum on our staff does not disempower them from the role God called them to and the passions they have in their heart for their homes and families. We're a very family-focused workplace. We want to empower your family and make it better, stronger, and healthier for both mums and dads here. But, again, the lack of joy has come from the pressure that income levels and careers are where you find your success. God created men and women different. And if you want to work and you want to and, that's your, and you're passionate about it, God bless you. But if you don't want to, don't do it. Better to be poor but love your life at home than to work. By the way, I want to add this little caveat, and sometimes it's too late for others, and you may not have heard something like this before, and I don't want you to feel judged or condemned. But if you're single or you're about to get married, young men, it is your job to create an environment where your wife can choose not feel pressured to work or not. You will work your butt off to make sure that she doesn't have to, but that she can. You hear what I'm saying? If she wants to work, God bless her. But it's your job to create the environment where if she doesn't want to and she's passionate about staying home, that her heart doesn't get crushed in the workplace when God called her to the home. And that's your job, to work that out. And right now, if that's already, you should start working your finances and your cars. You might need to trade in your, you know, your, your, your expedition for a Taurus. I don't know. But, but, but you've you got to find a way, find a way to provide. Also, another way a man can provide is if your wife can earn $280,000 a year and you can earn fifty. dollars one way for you to provide would be to swallow your pride and be like, go to work, baby. I got the kids. I got this, right? Right? I'm just saying it's a man's job to create the space that she can be the woman God designed her to be. Can someone amen that?
1960s, a sexual revolution, sexual anarchy, disease, and increasing perversion. 1960s as well, Playboy was put behind the counter in the 1960s. We also saw a birth control pill coming in, and so there was far less consequence for sex. I'm not saying that all forms of birth control are sin. I'm just saying that, um, that consequence-free sex might be sin. Um, and I'm not here to judge you for your past. I'm not here to judge you for yesterday. I'm just saying, hey, let's do better tomorrow. Amen. Um, the 1970s, Playboy and Penthouse were put on the shelf. Sex becomes a public fun cultural thing rather than a family intimate and relationship thing. In 1973, abortion is legalized, which further encourages sex outside marriage with no perceived consequences, followed immediately by no-fault divorce. And you can see how this digression in the, the culture around dating has created drama in our families. Amen? And so who your kids marry, if it's someone on that slide, it's not going to go well. I am going to preach overtime today, and you can either leave or make peace with it. But, but service will go for another 10 minutes, okay? Who you date matters, okay? Who you date matters. And so how you date matters too. Listen to me, young people. Who you date matters. And so how you date matters too. So I'm going to give... Pastor Jesse's advice on dating right now. Wasn't really a thing when I grew up, and it certainly wasn't a thing in Australia. Um, there was maybe 1,200 people in my school. Um, I knew of about four couples in the entire school. I moved over here, and I'm like, this is different. I'm not saying they weren't doing things on the side and in the, in the, in the hidden place. Um, but here's Jesse's advice for dating, okay? And some of you are going to hate this and I don't care at all. I actually don't care if someone's like, because of this advice on dating, I'm leaving that church. I don't care. But those who stay will read, will raise healthier kids, okay? <clears throat> healthier kids that will have healthier marriages, okay? So Jesse's advice on dating. Number one, it's a God-focused friendship. It is a God-focused friendship, okay? And it should be intentional as opposed to casual, okay? That is... I'm dating this person so that I can discover if I will marry them. Not I'm dating this person because it's good to have a girlfriend, because it's good to have a boyfriend, so I can talk about it to other people, yada, 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 yada. No, 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 no. I'm dating this person because I believe in my heart that there's a chance that in five years or six years when I'm out of school or, or, or in six weeks, I'm going to marry this person. I'm dating them for the specific purpose that they might be my wife or husband. You hear what I'm saying? I'm with them only for that. There is nothing else that I want from this than to determine if they're the right person for me to marry. And if there is any other motivation in dating, get out, it's sin. Relate, the dating should be exclusive. See, if it's not to marry them, it's to use them. That's it. You've got two choices. I'm dating them in hopes I'm going to marry them or I'm dating them to use them. Everyone, I've got to find the right one. Oh, my gosh. People's mummies and daddies found the right one years ago, and it worked out all right because they were just committed. Yeah. I'm not saying we need to do it like that. I'm just saying we can make it work. Amen? It's exclusive, and it, re it will honor both people in it, and it will honor their families, okay? If you're dating that person, it will be good for you, and it will be good for your family. It will be good for them, and it will be good for their family, okay? This is not just for kids, by the way. If you're 48 and suddenly single, this is advice for you as well, okay? 
Um, if the person you're dating, all they do is talk bad about their parents, break up. Because they're probably going to die young anyway, according to the word of God. All right? Seriously, honor your mother and father that it may go well with you and live a long life, right? And, uh, and so if they're, if they're bad-mouthing their parents the whole time, break up. Because that's what they'll do to you, okay? Uh, if, if they can't submit to their parents, they won't submit to each other, all right? Um, this is the most important thing I think that all of you need to hear, okay? Dating is visible, not secret. If dating's not visible, it will lead to sin, okay? So what do I mean by that? Okay, if my kid's going to date, every single aspect of that dating should be visible and public. Every aspect of it. Every single piece of it. If it, 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 it. And so, like, my kids, I have access to their phones and I know their PIN codes. And yeah, I look at it. Yeah, my kids are not allowed to take their phones upstairs. They stay on the ground floor, okay? Phones and no devices upstairs in our house. Stays on the ground floor. And yes, I peek through their phones every now and again. I'm their dad. I will be involved, okay? I'm going to look and I'm going to talk. And, we're, uh, and my kids have even had the moments where I come up and go, hey, I saw how you responded to that text. I want to say, well done. Sometimes I wonder if he puts that there on purpose. He's like, dad's going to read this. He's going to be proud of me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But dating will be visible. If there is any moment of your dating that mum and dad can't watch a video of or read about, uh, it was probably sin. No, seriously, if there's a single piece of your dating that you'd be ashamed for someone else to read about or see, that moment of your dating is sinful. And we need to change it. Dating should be visible, not secret. Speaking of phones, my wife knows my pin code. And I know hers. If your spouse doesn't know your pin code, why? If your spouse is not allowed to know your pin code, why? No, but like, for real, like, why? No, but, but why? That's something for when we're not over time. It should be committed to non-sexual. The purpose is to find a spouse. And the whole process is to see how they feel about God and God's plan for each other. Amen? If you agree on that, get married. If engagement comes along, then get married. Uh, sorry, then have pre-marriage counseling, uh, lifelong uh, learning, uh, repenting, uh, worshiping God together, loving each other, loving God. And I want to say this. I say all that to say this. We need active parents. We can't just provide food and leave it at that. Shelter, and that's enough. I put a roof over your head. Now shut up. I'm trying to watch the TV. No, we need to be active, involved, teaching, training, helping all the way, all the way till they get married. All the way. Abraham was over the top involved, and Isaac got married at 40. And I will be the same. I will be actively involved all the way till they're 40 and get married or whatever age it is. And then you need to back off and just be there to love and support them through the process and the learning curves, amen? So we're going to close in a second. I'm not going to have everyone stand up because that's when all the people who are late to lunch are going to run out. So can I just end with this? You need to stay in church. The lowest domestic violence and divorce rates in America are husbands and wives living for Jesus regularly in God's house. That's the lowest divorce and domestic violence rates in America. Stay in church. Set your kids up for success.
And can I say, by the way, no matter how it's been so far, God can redeem anything. No matter how you've parented, you're still alive, God can redeem it. It's not too late. Come on, that deserves an amen. It's not too late, right? God can redeem it. If you're single, you do not have to get married to be whole. Jesus was single. We are the bride of Christ. But naturally, as a man on earth, he was single. Paul said, better to stay single and serve God if you can handle it and if that's what the life that God's called you to. Better to be single and on fire for the Lord than to marry a moron who drags you away from the Father. So if you're here and you're like, why am I still single? Well, you've just been surrounded by morons and God's been protecting you. He's like, I don't want a moron near you, all right? We're going to stay tight. And know this, God completes you. A husband will not complete you. A wife will not complete you. Amen? Amen? Awesome. If you want your kids to be the people in the place for the purpose, living in the provision of God, you need to be an active parent or you risk them running back to that which God brought you out of. Proverbs in 2 Peter says, like a dog returns to its vomit and a pig returns to its mud. Let's not get back. Let's not be pigs who get cleaned up and return to the mud and let's not raise dogs who go back to the vomit. Let's pray for our families. Would you stand up with me? Service will be over in about three minutes and I apologize for going over, but I did feel that all of that was necessary for you. If you want me to pray for your family, there's a couple of things that you can get prayer for. Number one, if you've been tempted to go back to the vomit, back to the mud, if it's gotten hard, then I want you to come down the front and I'm going to pray for you just real quick together as before we go. If you want the strength to stay where God called you, maybe you want God to help you be bold and stop being a silent Christian in a secret place, being covert, but just be overt about your Christianity and your love of the Lord and His Word. I want to pray for you as well. But I also want to pray and declare that the devil can't have our families and that the change that he has begun in us, he will complete in them. Amen. So if that's you, you can just come down the front right now and I'm going to pray for you real quick. Just roll on down. Any of, those, any of those reasons, just come on down. Some of you, you're just coming down. You're like, I'm making a declaration. He can't have our families. That which God has begun, He will bring to completion. And it will continue for the generations and generations. You know a new prayer I started praying about two weeks ago? A new prayer I started praying two weeks ago is a prayer that I always, a stupid prayer, Prayers that the world think are stupid or even that half the Christians think are stupid are my favorite. Here's the thing. I, um, I used to think, I wonder who the first person in my lineage will be to go to hell or not follow Jesus. And then I thought, I'm going to pray that for 10 generations, there won't be a single unsaved descendant of mine. And that pressure causes a different way to live. I'm praying for 10 For 10 generations. Why, why, why not? For 10 generations. Come on, lift up your hands down the front here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, I just want to pray for those who are tempted to go back to the vomit and the mud. And I pray in the name of Jesus. God, release them of that fear, that pressure, that drawing, that tug to go back to the past. 
God, they vomited out the nastiness, the sickness and the disease of the past life. They've vomited up Mesopotamia, Lord God. I pray that you help them to continue to live in the promised land, to be the people in the place for the purpose that the provider has called them to. God, I pray Holy Spirit come and strengthen them right now. Strengthen them in your word. Strengthen them in the call of God on their lives, I pray in Jesus' name. But God, I pray and declare in the name of Jesus that that which you begun in us will be brought to completion in the generations after us. That it was not just for a lifetime, but it is for a generational change. God, I pray over my friends that which I pray over me, that for 10 generations, they would all serve the Lord. They would all serve the Lord. (laughs) They would not go back. So help us to be active parents involved teaching training lord god guiding directing our kids lord god setting in their lives right now habits that will carry them into the promises of god tomorrow i pray in jesus name god and i pray for those that have messed up in the past that there would be mercy there would be grace that yesterday's gone but today and tomorrow they would begin to line their lives up now with that which you have called them to and how you've called us to live lord may the word of god be over us May it be in us, may it come out of us that we would live and declare the ways of God from today onwards. I pray this in the name of Jesus and I declare it over my life and over our families that it's not just our lives, but it's the generations that come that will serve the Lord in Jesus' name. I pray somebody say amen. And if you believe it, come on, give the Lord a shout of praise. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please check out our other episodes. If you would like to connect with Eternity Church, be sure to go to myeternity.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at myeternitychurch. We'll see you next week. Love you heaps.